morning. My wife's already really tired of me complaining about the heat, so I'm only going to do it once. And I'll never do it again from up here. But, you know, we moved up here because I thought we were trying to get away from the heat, and it's hotter up here. I feel like I've been misled. Um, you guys didn't tell me that it's miserably hot up here. Um, but I'm done complaining. I'm not going to complain anymore, I promise. Um, but we're glad you guys are with us. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming. Uh, we're glad to be here. We're just going to jump right in this morning. It's a long-winded, and we don't want to take forever here. Um, so we're going to get right into our text. Uh, we've got a lot of good stuff to cover. Um, so we're going to be in Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Remember, we're kind of in the, the middle of the controversy um, stage of Jesus' ministry, right? We saw right away, kind of, he's, he's starting to make some people mad. And we saw, surprisingly, right, that it's, it's not the sinners that Jesus is kind of ticking off, right? But it's the religious people. It's, it's the Pharisees. These are the guys that he's offending, and these are the guys that are really upset with this, with this Jesus man. All right? So this morning, we're going to look at something that we've kind of been touching on a little bit every Sunday. But this morning, Jesus makes it perfectly clear. All right? This morning, we're looking at the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. We're going to look and see who he is and how what he has come to do, how it is completely new, and it is completely different. Right, that's what we're looking at this morning. We're going to do that in, in Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. You can find it printed there inside your bulletin. I mean, just follow along as I read. Uh, this is God's Word. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Pray before we begin. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Pray that this time will, will be about him. Pray that I would accurately uh, convey the truths of this text, Father, that you would work in this time, that you would point us uh, to uniqueness and the newness of Jesus Christ. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, to begin, right away, we're told, right, that, that the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees were fasting. Right, so we need to briefly talk about what fasting is, and particularly what it was in that context, and its roots kind of in the Old Testament. Now, we kind of treat fasting as kind of this weird kind of little, you know, no one really fasts, we don't really ever talk about it, it's kind of not really a, a big deal these days, but, but fasting was a big deal in Judaism at this time. All right? This is a, a key tenet of their faith, especially among the Pharisees. Remember these guys from last week, the Pharisees. They were kind of the, the religious leaders of the day. And the name Pharisee, it literally means separated one. Right? So the Pharisees were those that had separated themselves from all the kind of the sinners and the, and the riffraff out there. We're told by the Jewish historian, this guy named Josephus, that at this time there were about 6,000 Pharisees. Right? You have about 600,000 people kind of living in Jerusalem, in, in Israel at this time. So that's about 1% of the population. So it's not that many, but they, they wielded kind of great influence. Right? These guys were really important. Everyone wanted to know what they had to think and know what they had to say. So everyone was paying attention to the Pharisees. 
And they were all about God's law. Okay, these guys were meticulously about following every tiny little detail of the law and then looking down at anyone else who didn't care about the law as much as they did. But here's the thing, right? Here's, here's an important distinction we got to get this morning. They were so serious about God's law and they were so concerned with making sure that they didn't break every tiny little detail that they started adding like all of these other laws to God's law. For example, we're going to talk about this in detail next week. We're going to talk about the Sabbath controversy with Jesus. Right, what, is, what is the Sabbath? It's the fourth commandment. God comes and says, very simply, honor the Sabbath day, keep it holy, and do not do any work on it. All right, that's what we're told about the Sabbath. Well, you know, that's not a lot of details, is it? And rules like this, it drives religious people. These drive legalists crazy. Right, they want to know the specifics. They're concerned about the letter of the law and not the heart. What exactly you know, can I and, and can't I do? What counts as work? God, give us more details. His, his simple, broad laws were not enough for them, so they had to expand them. So by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees had come up with all of these other laws to help them follow God's law. There were literally thousands of different little rules that managed life down to the tiniest little detail. For example, talking about the Sabbath, we'll hit this next week. Women on the Sabbath could not wear jewelry. Why not? Well, wearing jewelry was, was the same as bearing a burden, right? And bearing a burden is work. So ladies, no Sabbath, no jewelry on the Sabbath because you don't want to work, right? One of my favorites is that, you know, you could eat on the Sabbath, obviously, and they like to eat radishes, you know, good food. I don't know if I've ever eaten a radish, but I don't know what it tastes like. But they ate a lot of radishes. But there was this huge debate among the religious leaders over how long you can dip a radish in salt. Why? Because if you dip the radish in the salt for too long, that would count as pickling the radish. And pickling is cooking, and cooking is work. So you've got to be careful about what you do with your radishes on the Sabbath. Right, these are just examples. These rules got crazy ridiculous. And the Pharisees were very, very serious about it. And they did this for every area of life. And we're going to spend a whole sermon on the Sabbath next week. But this morning we're talking about fasting. And of course they developed all kinds of rules for fasting as well. But if you actually go back and look at the Old Testament and look at God's law about fasting, you're going to only find one day of the year that God prescribes for a fast. All right, it's found in Leviticus 16, 29-34. God calls for a day-long fast once a year on the Day of Atonement, which was kind of like their national day of, of mourning and repentance. That's it. God commands one fast a year. But that was not enough for the people. All right, you know, if one day of fasting is good, you know, why not more days of fasting? So they started kind of adding more and more things that they would fast about. And eventually, by Jesus' day... Right? They would fast two days every single week. The Pharisees were meticulous about this. You had to fast on Monday, and you had to fast on Thursday. Both of those two days, you had to fast, or you weren't a good person. Listen, remember, you've got to get this distinction. This isn't a biblical command. Right? This is a man-made tradition that the Pharisees had so emphasized for so long that it kind of got elevated and treated as if it was a God-given command. So these guys fasted twice a week and they took it very seriously. 
there were three main pillars of Judaism at this time. All right, there was prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. These are kind of like the three most important things that you do. This is no secondary issue. Right? So don't think of fasting as we think of fasting today. This was kind of like core, primary stuff they were talking about here for them. It had become a prerequisite for religious commitment. It was a sign or it was the evidence that you were personally holy and that you were committed to God. It was your proof that you cared about um, your religion. Now, there were a number of different reasons why they would fast. Um, one of the reasons they would fast because they thought it kind of warded off demons, uh, so they would fast to kind of keep the demons away. Uh, they would fast to atone for sin or kind of to repent or kind of if there had been a big disaster, they would fast in hopes of kind of preventing there being more disaster. Um, like we said, fasting became kind of a, a sign or a badge of piety, right? It was your proof. It was how you demonstrated to everyone out there that you were holy and that you were good. And finally, it got to the point with the Pharisees at this time where fasting was seen as a meritorious act, which meant it was like, it was this act that God would see and would be impressed. Like, oh, that's, that's pretty good. You know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll do something good for this guy because of his fasting. It was a way that they earned favor or credit from God. And like many things, the Pharisees looked down on anyone else who was not as committed to fasting as they were. It was, if fasting was a sign of holiness and commitment, and you didn't fast... Right? Then it was clear to them that you weren't holy and that you weren't committed to your faith. And this is why Jesus could complain about their fasting as he does in Matthew 6.16. He says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. Right? So if fasting is a sign of holiness... What would these guys do? They would do everything that they could possibly do to make sure that you knew that they were fasting, right? They were kind of like, oh, you know, mopey, you know, oh, I've been fasting for so long, you know, I'm so holy, right? They were doing everything that they could to prove to you that they were holy, right? That's what fasting was. It was proof or evidence of personal holiness and worthiness. And we do the same thing today, though, don't we? Right? You hear this answer a lot. Someone will ask you, yeah, you know, are you a Christian? I'm like, uh, I go to church. Read the Bible. You know, I, I give some of my money. I'm obviously a Christian, right? We use these different things as kind of proof or badges of our holiness or our worthiness. Think about it like this. Imagine if today this new guy popped up all of a sudden on the scene. Really big deal. He wrote all these really fantastic Christian books, and everybody is reading them. He's speaking at all the big Christian conferences, and everyone's flocking to hear and to listen to this guy. Like, he's kind of it. He's the new kind of... Christian rock star preacher guy. And everyone wants to know what he has to say. And he's getting this big following. And this guy's a really big deal. But then imagine if, you know, it got out that this guy never went to church and that none of his followers ever went to church either. Right? We'd be instantly concerned, wouldn't we? You know, how can you be this great, you know, holy Christian teacher but, but never go to church? You know, what's, what's going on here? That's how they thought of fasting. Right? Our, what we think of going to church is just as important as what they thought about fasting. Right? So kind of with that background information in mind about fasting, this question to Jesus in verse 18 makes a little more sense. They say, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So the question is basically, uh, fasting equals holiness. Your disciples aren't fasting uh, so your disciples must not 
be holy. What's going on here, Jesus? What do you do? And Jesus replies in verses 19 and 20. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, to understand what he's saying here, you've got to understand a little bit about Jewish weddings. Right? Back then. When we think of weddings, we think about, you know, like a 30-minute ceremony, and 40 minutes is getting a little bit long, and let's, let's keep it about 30. And then you go afterwards, and you have like a three- or four-hour reception, and then that's, that's kind of it. Listen, they would have laughed at such an idea for a wedding. Weddings were such a big deal back then that it was a seven-day, it was a week-long party. Right? There was just an abundance of, of food and wine and singing and dancing, and everyone would cancel everything, and for a week, everyone would just have a fun and celebrate and eat and dance and sing. That's what Jewish weddings were like. It was this big, massive party. And so during these celebrations, you would basically eat constantly for a week. Right? It was a celebration. Right? That's what you do at parties. Food is really good for celebrating. You don't fast during a celebration. Right? You eat. And that's Jesus' point. You don't fast during a time of celebration. This is a time of celebration. And notice what else he says. Why it's a, fa- why it's a time of celebration. He says because you don't fast while the bridegroom is with you. Now, here Jesus goes again. Right? We kind of start to... He, you know, we like this Jesus. He, he does some cool things. He, he does some cool healings. He says some nice things. But, but then he goes off and starts claiming things like he's the bridegroom. Right, what's the big deal with that, you might ask? Well, it would have been a very big deal at the time to the Pharisees. And they would have known exactly what Jesus was claiming here. Again, Jesus in the New Testament, they only really make sense in light of the Old Testament. We've got to understand the Old Testament to fully understand the New Testament, which is, remember, Old Testament is the Hebrew Scriptures, okay? That, that was their Bible. And the Pharisees knew those Scriptures extremely well. Listen to just a few verses from those Scriptures. Isaiah 54, 5 and 6 says, For your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name. Jump over to Isaiah 62, 4 through 5. You don't have to turn there. I'm moving too fast. Isaiah 62, 4-5. He says, You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her, and your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, and so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride so shall your God rejoice over you. There's a lot more of these. We could go on, but that's God speaking. That's Yahweh. In the Old Testament, the Messiah is never once spoken of as a husband or as a bridegroom. Only God Himself is spoken of as the bridegroom, as the husband in the Old Testament. And now all of a sudden, here's this Jesus guy. He shows up and he's making a very controversial claim that the Pharisees would have understood perfectly. He says, I am the bridegroom. He says, I'm not just another teacher. I'm not just another prophet. I'm not just a healer. I'm not just a a pretty good guy with some pretty good ideas that you should live by. I'm not just the Messiah. Because I'm the bridegroom, which very clearly means I am God. I am claiming for myself the things that only God can claim. I am God, I have come, I am here. And how could you fast? 
how could you mourn when God himself has arrived? This is not a time for mourning. This is a time for celebration. God is here. You celebrate. But he goes on in verse 20. Look at what else he says. He says, a time is coming when I, the bridegroom, will be taken away. Now, such a statement would be very startling in their context. Remember Jewish weddings, right? You're not at some, like, big reception hall, and everybody waits around at parties, and then the bride and the bridegroom, they leave everyone else and go off on their honeymoon. Right? That's not how it worked then. Right? There was a seven-day party at their house, and at the end, everyone else left the bridegroom and the bride to start their lives off at their home. Right? Bridegrooms don't leave Jewish weddings at the time. Right? So this would have been very jarring. This would have really caught their attention. Oh, why, why would a bridegroom be taken away from a wedding? And this should catch our attention as well. Right? Because this is not just some random passing remark. Right? Jesus does not waste words, especially here in Mark. Remember, Mark is all about the person or, or the action of Jesus. We don't get a ton of, of teaching or, or words from Jesus in Mark. But here we have some, and they're extremely important. Here we are. We're only in chapter 2 of the gospel. The, Jesus' ministry has just begun. Things are going really well. He's a huge hit. He's gaining this big following. And here he is, right away from the very beginning, hinting at the true reason that he has come. He says, I'm going to be taken from you. And the storm clouds, we've seen them. They've already kind of started to build around Jesus. Right away, John the Baptist, right, the guy that came before Jesus, he was arrested. And we're only going to see him one more time, and it's, it's not going to go very well for John, right? John's been arrested, and he's about to be killed. The scribes have already started accusing Jesus of blasphemy. We saw the Pharisees attack Jesus last week, and this is only going to continue to increase. And we'll really see it as we close next week with, with Mark 3, verse 6, which says the Pharisees went out immediately and held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. And this is what's happening in, in the context of Jesus' ministry. Jesus knows why he is here. Right? Everything that he has done and will continue to do for the next three years was all very important. But it was all just a warm-up to the main event. Everything Jesus did, even from here, even at the very beginning, was anticipate, was an anticipation of the cross, when he would be taken away. Now, we've mentioned that Mark was a big fan of, of the prophet Isaiah. And it seems that he's, he's borrowing from Isaiah here as well. And the language is just too familiar. Isaiah 53.8 reads, By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. All right, Isaiah 53 is one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament. All right, this is the section of Isaiah that is called, the, it's about the suffering servant. All right, these are the predictions about the Messiah, about who he's going to be and, and what he is going to do. And it is the most clear explanation of Jesus and what he's going to do. And, and in verses 4 through 6, let me read verses 4 through 6, Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. This is the gospel in these, in these verses, hundreds of years before Jesus. Isaiah 53 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, 
We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Right? Those are the verses that come right before the verse um, Mark chooses to explain Jesus as being taken away. This is about the cross. This is about what Jesus is going to do. This is the gospel. And Jesus is already hinting at it right away here from the beginning. He has come to be taken away. He has come to be stricken by God and afflicted. He has come to be wounded for our transgressions, to be crushed for our sins. God has laid on Him the iniquity and sin of us all, and we are healed by His wounds. That's the gospel. Right? Jesus punished in our place. Jesus as our substitute. Jesus will be taken away, and He's taken away for us. That's why Jesus is different. That's why Christianity is different than everything else. Jesus is something completely new. And understanding that will help us better understand our final two verses. Look at verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. Now this seems a little random, doesn't it? You know, Jesus has just been talking about fasting, he's talking about weddings, now he's talking about fashion all of a sudden. I don't, I don't know what's going on. What he does is he answers the fasting question really quickly. Right? And then Jesus masterfully shifts the discussion. Okay, in these two verses, Jesus is no longer talking about fasting. Alright, if you have a Bible, you know, a lot of those Bibles, you know, you have section headings that kind of section things off and explain to you what that passage is about. They'll usually take these five verses and put them all together under some heading about fasting. Right, but Jesus is not worried about fasting anymore. Their question was, was so misguided that he quickly answers it, and then he takes advantage of this opportunity to shift the discussion to something much more important. And we know that he has changed the subject because of verse 20. He has claimed to be the bridegroom. He has claimed and predicted that he is going to be taken away. And he's saying what, will be, what he will accomplish by his being taken away. Right? We're no longer talking about specific, small issue fasting. We're talking big picture, important stuff. We're talking about the very nature of Jesus' ministry. What it is exactly that he is doing and how revolutionary, how paradigm shifting, how world shattering that something is. Let's look specifically at these two short parables real quick, and then we're going to kind of draw some conclusions and applications from them. Figure out the cloth business first. What is, what is Jesus saying here? Now, I'm not a seamstress. I know nothing about fashion. My, my wife dresses me. Uh, you know, I have no sense of style whatsoever, and I couldn't repair an article of clothing to save my life. In fact, I'll tell you a secret. I, I ripped my suit. I got a little rip there, but it's hidden by the jacket. But I have no idea how to fix it, uh, so I'm not sure what to do about it. But I do know, according to Jesus, that I don't take a new patch of cloth and put it on there. Right? That's what I at least know. And why is that? Well, it's pretty simple. And, and you can correct me if you're a fashion expert, because, again, I don't know anything about fashion. But remember, clothes back then, they weren't all fancy and, and synthetic and, and pre-shrunk. Right? They were wearing animal highs. They were wearing very different kinds of clothes than we are. And if, and if you had an old garment and you washed it, right, it naturally would shrink. That's what their clothes did. You, the more you wash it, kind of the more it shrinks a little bit. So if you take an old garment, right, that has already been washed a lot, and it has already been shrunk down, and then you take a new patch of unwashed, unshrunk cloth, and you put it on that old garment, when you start kind of washing it again, that old patch then will shrink up. Right? And when it shrinks up, while everything else is not shrinking, it tears away from the seams, 
you've got to rip again, and, and you've ruined the old garment, and, and the new patch is wasted, right? So it doesn't work. The old and the new have both been ruined. The new patch is so different from the old garment that the two are not compatible at all. To try and force them together will not work. And then Jesus makes the same point in verse 22 with a different illustration. He says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, your translation might, might be talking about bottles there. It's not a bottle. When we think bottle, we think of like, you know, little glass Coke bottles or something, right? They didn't have those. So they, they, they stored their, their wine in, in goat skins, and animal skins. And so what they would do is they would, you know, they'd take a goat, they'd take out all the, the bones and the guts and everything, and they would cure it over a fire and, and get it ready. Then they would tie it off at the legs, right? and they would pour grape juice. They would pour unfermented grape juice into the neck, and then they would seal off the neck, and then they would let it sit. Right? And that's when the, the fermentation process would begin. Right? What is fermentation? Right? Fermentation is just a process where you have grapes, you have the sugar in the grapes, that the yeast kind of transfers, it takes that sugar, and it produces alcohol and carbon dioxide. Right? What is carbon dioxide? It's a gas. Right? So as this process goes on, right, you have this little bit of wine, and it starts to fill with gas, and it expands. And so if you put it in a new, fresh, kind of limber wine skin, right, that skin expands with the wine. It can hold it, and it can taint it. But if you take an old, already stretched out, brittle wine skin, and you fill it up with unfermented grape juice, you seal it off, as that then starts to ferment and all the gas builds up, it'll explode, right? It'll ruin the wine skin, and it'll waste all the wine. New wine requires fresh wine skins. The old cannot contain the new. And Jesus is saying the exact same thing for these two parables. And as it always is in Scripture, right, repetition demonstrates importance. What Jesus is saying here is important enough to be illustrated twice. This must be understood because this is key to his entire ministry. It is fundamental to what Jesus has come to do. The old cannot contain the new. What does Jesus mean by this? Right? Context is key. He's talking to the Pharisees, and his teaching that the old cannot contain the new was in response to a question from the old about the old ways and why he isn't adhering to them. All right, think of it like a river. I don't know if this explains it, but I'm, I'm going to try. Think of it like a river. You've got a big, broad river, and you, know, you have all the Jewish people kind of floating merrily along down the river, kind of going their way. All right, so Jesus shows up in the river, and he says, guys, I'm not just going to float along merrily down the way you want me to go. He says, I'm going this way. And he shoots off a little tributary going a completely different direction. Big, broad river kind of going this way, small, little, narrow tributary that shoots off this way. But it's important to realize that both of these things go in two very different places. But notice also, this is important, that these two streams also come from the exact same source. Okay? It's not like there's a river over here and Jesus jumps out and walks over and makes his own river. No. His river shoots off from the other river, right? They end up in different places, but they start in the same source. This is important. Here's what Jesus is not saying here. He's not saying that all that Old Testament stuff was wrong. Now, you know, sorry, God kind of 
messed it up, things didn't work out as he was hoping, but now I'm here, I'm going to take care of the problem, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix everything. No, Jesus wasn't trying to completely break with everything that had come before him in the Old Testament. He's, he's constantly quoting, he's constantly affirming the Old Testament. He didn't destroy it, it says he has come to fulfill it. When Philip meets Jesus in John 1.45, he, he runs to his friend Nathaniel and he says, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. He says, he says we found the guy that the Old Testament is about. In John 5.39, Jesus says to the Jews, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Right, and the scriptures he's talking about, right? It's the Old Testament. That's the only scripture they had at this time. He says, those scriptures, that Old Testament, it's about me. And then in Luke 24, 44, Jesus says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that, everyone written, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The Old Testament, Jesus said, he says, it's about me. You guys have completely missed it. It is all pointing forward to me and my coming and what I'm going to do. So Jesus doesn't cancel. He doesn't do away with the Old Testament. He fulfills it. And this is important to note because there are kind of some circles of Christianity out there, some, some, even in some Baptist churches, even in some fundamental churches, that will teach you that God kind of acts one way in the Old Testament, and then you know, he kind of changes his mind, and then he acts a different way in the New Testament. And some people will actually even teach that you are saved by your works in the Old Testament, but then in the New Testament, now it's different. Now you're saved by your faith. Two completely different ways to be saved. But the problem with that is, is that completely goes against Scripture. Remember, no one is righteous. No one is good enough. No one can save themselves. John 14, 6 says that Jesus, he comes and says, I am the way the truth, and the light. And no one gets to God except through me. In Acts 4.12, Peter, talking about Jesus, says that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It does not matter when you live, right? before or after Jesus, Old Testament or New Testament. Anyone who has ever been saved has only been saved by the work of Jesus Christ. In an interesting passage, in, in Galatians 3.8, Paul says something that, that seems very strange to us. He says, he writes that the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. Right? Abraham, who lived thousands of years before Jesus. Paul writes that the gospel was preached to Abraham. People have always been saved the same way. And how can that be? How does that work before Jesus? Well, it's, it's just what we talked about. It's Jesus' claims that the whole Old Testament, that entire system, the whole law, is all about Him. It all pointed forward to His coming and what He was going to do. Right? It all kind of taught them about the coming Messiah, the one who would come as a Savior and bear the sins of His people and save them. They were saved by their faith in God's promise to provide them a substitute. They trusted God. Right? That's what faith is. That's what we talked about. Trusting God. They may not have known all of the specific details about who Jesus was and the exact kind of intimate details of his ministry that we do today, but they were told enough, were said, it's told, it's said, and they trusted God and he saved them based on the coming work of Jesus on the cross. And many of them understood this and were saved. But many did not, including 
the Pharisees. They had completely missed the concepts of God's grace and mercy and His promise to make a way. So they had attempted to create their own way. They had created all of these rules. They were trusting in their own traditions and their own holiness to save them. They did not trust God to save, so they created their own religion to save themselves. And isn't that ultimately what religion is? All right, we've, we've made this case before. Every other religion out there basically teaches self-salvation. Self-salvation. Right, keep these rules, do these things, and your life will be better, and you will be saved. And here in our passage, Jesus says very clearly, he says, that does not work. He has come to disrupt the Pharisees' entire system. He is declaring the old way, the religion that they had constructed, does not work. Their attempts to save themselves will not work, and that he is doing something completely new. Right, 150 years ago, I'm going to apologize for this ahead of time. I, I did this last week. This will be the last time I mentioned a German philosopher for a really long time. But there was a guy 150 years ago in Germany named Karl Marx. Really important philosopher. If you're going to know anything about our society or our culture or economics, you need to know something about Karl Marx. His philosophy, his, his writings were kind of the key driving ideas behind the development of, of socialism in the 20th century and the rise of, of communism in the Soviet Union and in China. But he is possibly most famous for one little quote. You, you'll hear this everywhere. Everyone loves to use this Karl Marx quote. And the quote is, religion is the opium of the people. Or sometimes people quote it as, um, religion is the opiate of the masses. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that religion is largely a fantasy that suffering people fabricate to make their lives bearable. Right? He, he's arguing that people have these, you know, these terrible lives, right? they suffer a lot, so they kind of create these systems. They create these religions that tell them that everything is okay, that it doesn't matter that this life is hard or difficult now because you know, they're going to be rewarded in the afterlife. He says that it's just this kind of thing that people create to get by, you know, to get through this hard life. It's a drug that people use to escape the realities of life. And you know what? And hear me out here. I'm going to explain. I think he's pretty accurate with this statement. Right? Because this is largely what religion does, isn't it? This is exactly what the Pharisees have done here. They have created this elaborate system of, of rules and traditions by which they can earn their salvation, by which they can make their life meaningful and more bearable. They create this system that kind of gives them a way to prove themselves, to justify themselves, and to earn their own salvation. That's religion. All right? It is self-salvation. You do this, and you do this, and you don't do this, and you will be saved. But remember, Jesus is here declaring that he is doing something completely different. He is new. His way is completely different than the way of every other religion. And he says very clearly here that he can't be fit into our current old systems of religion. He's not just a patch. He can't be put into old wineskins. Jesus is fundamentally at odds with every other system of religion, including the traditional Judaism of the Pharisees. He's new. He's different. He hasn't come to just give us another list of rules to keep so that we can save ourselves. 
Christianity is not just another religion that tells you what to do to save yourself. Jesus comes here and he changes everything. He says, you cannot save yourself. He says, you cannot do it. I don't care how holy you look. I don't care how well you keep the rules. You can't do it. So quit trying. Jesus says, I'm different because I have not come to tell you what to do, but I have come to do it for you. That's the difference. Religion is about what you must do. Christianity is what is about what has already been done for you. It is do versus done. And these two sides are completely opposed to each other. They cannot be mixed. They are like old wineskins and new wine. They are like an old garment and a new patch. Jesus is saying, I cannot simply be added on to the religion that you already have. I'm not just an addition. I am not an add-on. I do not work that way. And some of us treat Jesus like this. We have a garment patch Jesus. Right, well, I've got this, you know, I got this little issue over here that's kind of giving me a problem. I'm going to sew a little Jesus on this problem. I'm going to let him take care of that, and then it'll all be okay. Right, but this doesn't work. And in fact, this approach will often make your life more miserable because Jesus refuses to work like that. Remember, it is all or nothing when it comes to Jesus. The, prat, the patch you tried to add on to some small little area of your life and hoping it's going to take care and that problem will go away, that patch is going to tear away. Jesus says, I'm not a little patch for your life. He says, I am everything. He says, I am completely new. You cannot mix me with the old. You have to choose one or the other, old or new. It's either your way or it's my way. It's either old wine or it's new wine. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're writing off everything that I'm saying because you think all this is nonsense and that you don't have any religion in the first place to add Jesus onto, then you are sorely mistaken. We all have a religion. The most militant atheist in the world has a religion. Or that religion may be himself, right? But it is still a religion. Right, what is religion? We use that word a lot. Can you actually define religion? What is it? Well, it's just a system of beliefs about the ultimate questions in life. It is a code that we live by. It is our explanation for the way things are and how we should act in response to that. Everyone has such beliefs. Everyone has a religion. You, you may not believe in God. You may believe that um, nothing really matters. There's no right or wrong. You know, you just kind of do whatever you want. But that is still a uh, religion, right? You still think certain things about life and, and death and ultimate reality and ethics, right? You still have a religion. And Jesus is speaking just as much to you as he is speaking to people with traditional religion. Listen, Jesus is an equal opportunity offender. He offends the Pharisees, he offends us religious people, he offends the sinners and the non-religious people just as much. He offends everybody. All right? He is speaking to the Christian and the atheist here. All right? The atheist is no different than the Pharisee. He creates these rules and these ways to give his life meaning and to prove himself. And he comes up with these different codes that he's going to live by to prove that, that his life matters. That's religion. It's no different. That is self-salvation. And Jesus says it will not work. He says only I will work because I am the only one that offers you anything besides self 
salvation. I am the only one that steps in and does the saving for you. Now, for those of us here at Woodside, we have to make sure that we don't become traditionalists like the Pharisees. Right? They were so frustrated with Jesus because he came in and he disrupted their entire way of life. They said, ah, Jesus, you know, we, we've always done it this way. Let's kind of let's keep everything exactly the same way it's been. And Jesus shows up and he says, things are going to change, and they're going to change dramatically. It's not about our man-made traditions. It's not about what we want. It's not about what makes us most comfortable or best serves our desires or preferences. It's about him and what he wants. We cannot make decisions and do things because they are your personal preference. We cannot make decisions and do things because they are my personal preference. We must do everything that we do in light of the gospel and in light of the great need out there for that gospel. We cannot be about kind of holding up inside of our walls with other Christians kind of just hanging out with each other. We've got to get the gospel out there to the people who need it. We've got to do whatever we need to do in here to best serve this community and to best make this a place where non-Christians and sinners can come in and hear the gospel. It's not about us. It's not about what we want. It is about Jesus. New wine is for fresh wineskins. Jesus is that new wine. He cannot be constrained. He cannot be limited. He's not just a patch that we can add on to our man-made quilt of, of beliefs and practices. He is completely new, and He is completely different. He doesn't come bringing just another religion that teaches you another way to save yourself. He comes to do the saving for you. Nowhere else are you going to find God Himself entering the story and taking care of your problem for you. That's the gospel. It is completely unique. It is the saving activity of God in Jesus Christ. Listen, it is not instruction. It is announcement. It is not about what you do. It is about what He has done for you. And He has come and lived and died in your place. He has taken the punishment that your evil and that your sin deserve. He takes your death and He gives you His life. He says you cannot save yourself. You can't do it yourself. He has to do it for you. And the religious people, the Pharisees, they hate that. All right? We hate being told that we're not good enough. We hate being told that we can't do it ourselves. But that's what the Bible very clearly says. So who is your Savior? Is it Jesus or is it something else? Is it your job? Is it your success? Is it your money? Or your girlfriend? Or your family? Or is it yourself? Whatever it is, we all have something that we are trusting in to save us and to fulfill us. And only one Savior can actually do it. He is the new wine. He is something completely different. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he was nothing like what we expected him to be. We thank you that he was exactly what we needed. Father, I thank you for sending us a Savior. I thank you for sending us a way uh, to be reconciled to you. I thank you for, for giving us the answers to, to the ultimate questions in life, Father. Thank you for fulfilling us. Thank you for giving us meaning. And we thank you ultimately for saving us through Jesus Christ. Father, we confess our sin. I confess that I am so prone 
uh, to wander from you. I am so prone to try to save myself, improve myself, and look really good and smart and holy. Father, that's not what it's about. Father, I pray that you convict us of our sin and our tendency to, to try and save ourselves. Father, show us Jesus Christ. Show us the new way. Father, show us the gospel. I pray that you would convict us of sin and that you would work in our hearts, Father, and make us more like your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for this time. Thank you for Jesus. And it is his name that we pray. Amen.